You've joined the Beatmax Video Club, rewinding back to our favourite films of the 1980s. My name's Rich Nelson, and tonight I've rented The Tall Guy. Watching it with me is Ellen Cheshire. Hi, Ellen. Hello, Rich. Welcome to the Video Club. Thank you for bringing a copy of a film that I hadn't seen for a very long time, which is usually the, the way on this. What's so special about The Tall Guy for you? Um, well, uh, I remember it uh, when it came out, so I did see it in cinemas in 1989, and at the time I was working in uh, a London theatre, I was working at the Dominion Theatre um, on Tottenham Court Road, so anything to do with theatre and films, I was there, so you know, I, I rocked up and saw this, um, you know, with a lot of unknown actors to me at that point. Um, and uh, loved it. I've loved it ever since. Working in that industry, this film must have been uh, very close to home for you. I imagine a lot of people who work in the sorts of um, industries where they make a lot of films about, you know, sort of law or police or the military or something like that. But um, I guess to have a film set very much in London theatre land, that must have been a real treat. It was, and watching it now, it's lovely to see the, you know, those shows that were on as he's cycling past. We won't talk about the uh, the journey he's taking, um, but you know, I remember. Oh, I saw that. I saw Follies at the Shaftesbury. Oh, I saw Les Misérables. So yes, it has that sort of nostalgia value, um, and just lovely to see such sort of you know complete sequences shot in theatres with audiences and things like that. I mean, com- coming at it, I mean, I'm, I'm not a theatre buff really at all, and, and I guess the the closest I, I get these days is my wife's birthday. We we go to a musical. Um, Always a musical. <laughs> which, well, exactly, and it's it's difficult, you know. I, I'm sort of coming at it from those eyes, but you know, this this film seems to, and, and again, maybe this is just my angle. It seems to look like when you look back at it through the eyes of thirty years ago, and you look at the stories of the people who made it, the people who were in it, they've all got such different sort of paths that they've taken, and yet so many of them, as we'll come across, started in, in pretty much one place. Yeah. And I know Tim Worthington sort of talked about when he was on the Morons from Outer Space episode about not the nine o'clock news. I mean, that that was just such a, a launching board for large parts of the creative mind behind this. Yes, I mean, we've got some great um, sort of actors that had sort of built their reputations up on sort of television. And this was um, a feature film, although made by LWT. Um, so sort of drawing on that television talent, but, you know, making a feature film. Um, and this is kind of really early in the career of Richard Curtis in terms of his films. It's his debut feature film. Um, and it's very much a template for the kind of lot of his films to follow. Um, but yes, like Mel Smith, who directed it, obviously had come through television. Rowan Atkinson, um, Emma Thompson had all kind of made their way through um, sort of ITV television and BBC. Um, so yes, it was nice to see them on a big screen. Again, being a, a sort of British film, and and it's you know I've I've grown up, I've always lived in London, and you know recognizing parts of it and as, as we discussed earlier um, it's, it's quite easy to see the discrepancies around the routes that are taken and how Jeff Goldblum's character how he can cycle from A to B via Z and 
I know. Yeah. Well, yes, I mean, I suppose we you know because we know London so well, or we all know that West End uh, so well. You know, we know why if it, that theatre is south of that one, why is he suddenly cycling south again? Um, but you know, when we watch a New York film, I'm sure it's exactly the same. I just don't know New York so well. Um, just taking in all the sights in such a you know beautiful way. I mean, that sort of post theatre land with the you know the, all the lights still on and the streets are empty and I think it might even be raining at one point so it's a mm. beautiful time to sort of walk or cycle through London um, and just seeing so many beautiful buildings and, and even now sort of looking back you know with, with the cast I mean you know if we talked about this was Emma Thompson's sort of first film wasn't it or, or sort of first yeah it was her first feature yeah. film so um uh, yes, yeah, so it stars Emma Thompson, who had um, had come through sort of university. I'm not sure what she, she was Oxford or Cambridge. Um, one of the, one of the they, other. They were both the same. Yeah. <laughs> um, and had sort of made a name, um, sort of, uh, sort of maybe a couple of years earlier in some television series, both comedy and more serious things. So she'd kind of arrived and was like fated by BAFTA Television Awards um, as this kind of great new thing. And then the one of the TV series. Uh, Fortunes of War, which I think was a Granada program, which possibly why there was a joke about Granada in there, um, was where she met Kenneth Branner and they had become this kind of celeb couple almost straight away and sort of got married. And so they were this kind of like the golden couple of sort of British television and, you know, theatre. Um, so she was kind of had made a name for herself at that point. And and I suppose that I mean the the star and kind of the eponymous, although not quite, um, Jeff Goldblum as the tall guy. Yeah. You know, even even now and you know, thirty years later, he seems to be kind of the the in thing at the moment. No, I was just thinking, looking at photographs of them both now, because I would love to see a film with Emma Thompson and Jeff Goldblum now. Oh, they yeah. both look so gorgeous still. I was thinking, God, that would be a good film, wouldn't it? <laughs> He he looked, and this this sounds probably quite weird, but I mean she looked she looked lovely and stunning then, and she still looks good now. Whereas Jeff Goldblum seems to have grown into his looks. Yeah, I was thinking that he's yeah he really has. It's a very good phrase, grown into his looks. Yeah. <laughs> As I say, the tall guy growing anymore, but um, yeah, yeah it's I very much perhaps... the kind of part of that. Yes, you know, sort of geeky boy gets you know, gorgeous clever girl trope. <laughs> <laughs> geeky boy in his superman pajamas um no yes i think she quite rightly threw those out as part of the big binge <laughs> yeah i mean I, I i watched this with my wife the other night and she said did you ever have pajamas like that before we met I said, no of course not and <laughs> of course I, i've still got my superman duvet cover from when i was about six <laughs> okay yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, 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 it's spare bedding it's fine you know um, uh, but I mean the, the whole premise of this film it's it sort of opens with Dexter Jeff Goldblum he's basically a stooge for Rowan Atkinson who I could only describe as a bastard <laughs> in this and it's kind of I mean it's not a double act that would give it too much no, credit no, but um, it's stooge isn't he the sidekick literally being kicked around <laughs> yeah I mean that's I suppose being an actor and and he talks about it throughout the film where it was a short-run gig that turned into a five-year yeah. event. You know, this wasn't supposed to last so long. Yeah, it was kind of, it was money and an income and, you know, obviously quite prestigious. You know, they were packed houses five years into their on of a show, which frankly looked really bad. <laughs> uh, yes, with Rowan Atkinson playing Ron Anderson, 
Yes. So a lot of imagination went in there. Well, I just kind of think, you know, having seen this, it's probably one of the first things I really saw Rowan Atkinson in. It was like, so he's always been kind of Ron Anderson in my head. I've kind of always found it hard <laughs> to separate. So I kind of always think, oh, he must be a really horrid man behind the scenes. You know, he projects this warm exterior, but inside he's mean and cruel. <laughs> Uh, he plays it very well. There's not a hint of comedy in his performance at all, really. No, I mean, again, like, as as a stooge, you know, De- Dexter is very much sort of, sort of they're playing off each other, but he he is the the funny man, the loose guy to his utter bastardness, and yeah. and some of the, and again, this is a Curtis theme that goes through most of his films. It seems to anyway, with some very odd creative swearing. Yes, yes. Well, yes, we all remember the opening to Four Weddings and a Funeral. <laughs> <laughs> and Lee Daisy from Notting Hill. <laughs> I mean, really, like Four Weddings, I I saw that on a ferry when, I mean, when, when did that come out? Was that 94, yeah, I think? About five years um, later. Yeah, and I saw that in a ferry in the opening, because I guess it was a ferry, they didn't know who was watching it. The opening was obviously not fuck, 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 fuck. It was <laughs> bu- bugger, bugger, bugger. <laughs> Which, um, <laughs> I, well, and, and until I saw the sort of full version several years later, I just kind of thought, bugger, bugger, that's very, very English. But yes, um, yeah, so yeah, so we have some, we have some creative swearing here, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but there, there was some mention in some of the, the research I did that, um, that this play or this review that, that Ron Anderson was doing was kind of a, it was almost, based on reality that there was some was it some run in Broadway that he did at some point that that didn't last very long and I'm not sure if this was like a a sort of comeback to that yeah I mean it has that kind of feel of kind of um I don't know if it was that I'm not aware of that story but you know they he started out with you know Richard Curtis in the kind of the sort of Cambridge footlights and the Oxford dramatic you know societies and things like that it did have that feel of a bit of a kind of university student um show um with sort of clever dickishness mm. in there so you know I, I i assumed it was a callback to that kind of student review that would be the sort of thing that if he's a a name of some sort that people probably would pay to go and see. I don't know how much a ticket to that would have cost, but they seem to be playing to packed houses. Was playing anyway. to packed houses after five years, you know. So it's you know, <laughs> it must have had some appeal. <laughs> I don't think it There's... had much appeal even to a 1989 audience. I don't think we were meant to kind of think, oh, this is a great, uh, you know, a great comic work. Yes, he's obviously found the formula anyway. But this is where part of what um, what sort of the story where the story goes, where um, Dexter sneezes on stage, um, and there's various there's a few gags about how he's got sort of allergies and he's allergic to everything, and I think they they just about keep it the right side of being a hypochondriac or something like that, but decides to go and sort of seek help for these um, allergies he's got and. I mean, if some of the things I think they discover that when the the scene in his flat, which is you know very reminiscent of Notting Hill, where he has is it Weetabix with water? Yes. Yes. God. <laughs> yes, it, it has. Yes, another sort of Curtis uh, familiar things is the kind of chaotic flat of the slovenly yeah. slovenly men living together. Oh, you know him. You know think about sort of Spike. Um, he could be a spike, yeah. yeah. Uh, but yes, the twist is here. He's got to share in this uh, place with a 
very glamorous uh, Geraldine James as Carmen, who has, let's say, a rather exotic uh, <laughs> sexual <laughs> sexual life that we see on a yeah. daily basis. <laughs> she, she has a lot of friends. She's quite successful at it. <laughs> she she <laughs> seems enjoying <happy>. it. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, there's no innuendo or there's no implication that anything about her because of that that's just how she lives and how she lives who she is. Yeah, yeah these sort of parade of men doing various various things <laughs> um yeah she's enjoying it and i think that's quite nice about the female roles in this film is that they can just sort of have a sort of healthy attitude towards sex yeah we will discover later <laughs> <laughs> Um, and and this is where he goes to the hospital, and and again, sort of, and and in my case, growing up in, in North London, you yeah. know, I know the, the Royal North Free Hospital, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, the Royal Free Hospital. It's kind of, you know, that that part of you know Belsize Park. It's it's basically a landmark, and he goes there and, and meets Kate or well, Emma Thompson, and being very, I don't, know, I suppose, if if you're an American or, or certainly not from that part of the world, you'd see that and probably just think that's a standard nurse. Mm. She plays it very straight, to, certainly yeah, to begin with. Kind of brisk anyway. and efficient, obviously very good at her job. Yeah, she seems to have a lot of, uh, as she says, having to extract things from various male orifices seems to be her main mm. uh, <laughs> main role, it seems, there at the hospital. It's nice to know. I mean, I, you hear that quite a lot in sort of comedy or, or where people have worked in the medical profession. It's A lot of their stories or war tales come from taking things out yeah. that shouldn't be there. Yeah. It's, um, there's always seems to be some man waiting to have her, her hand go up his, in his bottom. Yeah, it's obviously a ploy. <laughs> uh, he decides in the end to, to have a series of injections to cure his, his allergies. And he goes back, is it three times and he doesn't say anything? Yeah. Because he'd so, quite like to ask her out. Well, I think initially he was going to take tablets, wasn't it? It was when he sees hmm. um, uh, Kate, Emma, that he decides to have the injection. So he has an excuse to go back. He's kind of smitten at first sight, really, isn't it? So, yeah. yeah. He does have repeat visits, but does fail to to pop pop the question. <laughs> well, I did, I did like, you know, they did play a... Not a flashback, but a, a dream he has where um, people, doctors are operating on him and they, they sort of search his body and find that he's got no spine. And it's like a sketch that it just works because it's not played too long. It's very obviously a dream, but it just about shows you know, the kind of inner monologue that goes on inside him. But did you do your extensive research to discover who one of those doctors was in his first film role? Jason Isaacs. Jason Isaacs. Yeah. He is the man that delivers the line, you mean he's spineless? <laughs> Jason Isaacs' first film role, all we can see is his eyes behind the uh, surgical mask. Lurking. But, uh, yes, if I hadn't seen that on Wikipedia, I had to go back and, which doctor was he? <laughs> doctor too, of course. <laughs> But, so yes, that was a good gag. So there was quite a few of those kind of flashbacks or dream sequences that kind of popped in. Some work better than others. Yeah, I mean, and again throughout the film, it just it's just a different and a, and a alternate way of trying to give us an insight into him. And I mean, what better way than someone's dreams? I suppose they probably tell you more than anything. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I don't just dream of eighties films, honest. <laughs> 
in your Superman or DJ set. <laughs> yes, well, it, it was the 80s, it's fine. It was, yeah. When he did actually ask her what her name was, and she says, Kate Lemon, horrible name. <laughs> he comes up with some worse names you could have. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I just the way I suppose it's kind of one of those, if you're thinking about this and you have a list of options to choose from, and you have a whole list. It said, "Well, what could I say now?" It said, "No, I like it." Or all these weeks I've been coming here, I've I've been wanting to ask you something. What I really want to know is, what's your name? Kate. Lemon. Sorry, name. No, not at all. Uh, it could have been worse. It could have been called Hitler, or tampon, or something. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Yeah, he's very good at delivering those kind of lines as well. <laughs> yeah. Again, like it just seems that you know his performance in there, and and you know, bear in mind that sort of play, and he works as the sort of expatriate that he's there as, I suppose, a visitor in, in some regards. But he's as neurotic or as sort of overthinking things as perhaps even. You know, one of your standard Hugh Grant characters from later Curtis films. Yes, I wonder whether um, I couldn't sort of find. I did sort of um, look around, and it, I did find somewhere that t- he was um, cast because there had been um, the writer strike in America. So Jack Goldman suddenly had a schedule to do this. Mm. Uh, but I wonder whether the original screenplay had an American. I mean, it doesn't really need to have an American in the part. No. It's, very, um, it's it's hardly referenced. Is it, you know, other than yeah, it, it they obviously did a few things just to establish he wasn't an American in Britain doing this, but he didn't actually need to be for his character. No. So I do kind of imagine more of a kind of maybe a sort of Richard E. Grant in with nail and eye, or <laughs> a kind of character, you know, another tall man <laughs> that's a bit shambolic. Yeah, I mean, imagine that as an alternate casting of <laughs> oh, Richard E. Grant in this. Yeah, so I mean, you know, you could easily see that as as the model, and then it makes a kind of clearer route from the Jeff Goldblum through to the Hugh Grant if you have hmm. a floppy haired Englishman playing this role, because uh, there's a very sort of clear character uh, character choices and tropes that you see here that do repeat later. Yeah, four weddings in Notting Hill. But even the some of the next scenes where he's you, you kind of see. I say flashbacks to his previous dating history and some of the women he's been out with. Um, yeah. they're, they're a rogues gallery, if, as it were, and he <laughs> he just seems totally awkward in all cases. Yeah, uh, yes, and all these kind of inappropriate women. You've got the kind of hypersexual one. You've got the hippie, druggy one, um, and yes, that's a scene that comes up sort of in Notting Hill after he's trying to get over, Hugh Grant's trying to get over mm. um, Julia Roberts. He starts dating women and they're all, you know, completely wrong for him. Um, Except, so yeah. now I don't I don't want to make this the Notting Hill podcast. <laughs> but, we'll have to come back to that. <laughs> well, exactly. But I mean, it just touched on something that I, I only thought about a few days ago because it was on Netflix. And he, at that point, ended up, I say ended up, Hugh Grant settled for, as it were, was it Emily Mortimer? Yes. And I didn't realise it was her until quite you know, recently. And you, don't, you never realise what happens to her, you know. No. That was no. A, I mean, imagine her. I mean, imagine if they made a spin-off of that. Yes. 
<laughs> and she's sitting there at home waiting for him, and then all of a sudden he sees her, him on the telly with Julia Roberts. Yeah, she'd have a story to to tell, you know, that yeah. she once dated the man that's now married to Julia Roberts. You yeah. know? The news of the world would buy it. Yeah, she could probably find a story. Although she didn't seem the sort. She just seemed like a nice girl, didn't she? <laughs> Too nice. <laughs> Surreal, but... No, no, fuck it. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no, fuck. Uh, no. But yeah, similarly, sort of the the sort of Jeff Goldblum here is not doesn't seem kind of very good at his job in the same way. Again, Hugh Grant didn't seem a very good bookshop owner in <laughs> in Notting Hill. It doesn't matter as long as you got money. Uh, well, <laughs> do they have money? Probably not. not really, but, do they? No. but they both managed to bag these great women. <laughs> they must have something. They must charm. Yeah. <laughs> It's when he, because he bumps into Kate when he's out on a date with, I, I didn't write her name, but the woman who calls him Mr. Petrol. Yes. Um, the the rampant Eastern European lady. Yes, because we see that flashback of her legs a few times, don't we? <laughs> she seemed nice. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't there a James Bond uh, uh, girl that had a sort of... Uh legs around neck plot line <laughs> well you you should know you wrote you wrote big parts of the uh the I wrote, Tashin book i don't think that was one of my chapters that wasn't a, that wasn't a timothy dalton film it wasn't it. a timothy dalton i can talk very happily about the two timothy daltons and quantum <laughs> of solace um, uh, i did some research on the others but not quite as in-depth as those chapters in the Tashin book yes <laughs> That's how we started talking on Twitter about James Of course, Bond. yeah. Of course, I, how I did, stupidly didn't pick up. and Well, I'd had the book for about five years and didn't open it until I actually started doing the podcast. And, yes. and the format of the book is uh, yeah, sidetracking. My name appears every other line. <laughs> I mean, your name's in there more than the name James I'm Bond. Anybody else <laughs> I'm not sure how he left things with this Eastern European lady because... She was kind of giving off these hints that they were going to get married, and you know he probably gave off, or certainly gave off, that he wasn't that interested. Um, doesn't he just leave her in the restaurant? Doesn't he just kind of pretty much? Yeah, yeah. He shuffles her out the restaurant and then legs it. We never see her again. <laughs> no, but then he's sort of loitering at the hospital after that because he knows Kate's about. Kate's at work and sort of pesters her, and it's all very yeah. nice. Yeah. Yes, different times. <laughs> yeah, but again, I, I liked her comeback because when um, she agreed to to go on a date with him and implied that he's not a very good actor because he'd given the sort of story that he was due to go to Morocco and that's why he needed the injections. <laughs> yes, <laughs> which becomes a sort of running gag within it as well. Yeah. So yes, he does. After they, they bump into each other at the restaurant, he does manage to pluck up the courage to ask her out in a very sort of Richard Courtesy kind of way, fumbling. Fumbling for a hospital Fumb- ward. Yes. <laughs> well, it doesn't need sort of say, you know, why, why do you want to go out? And it, then he makes up the whole excuse about, um, oh, I want to be a nurse. And <laughs> this, is where, this is why I love the sort of the character of Kate here. She said, oh, oh, I'm not interested if it's just, um, you know, talking about work. I have enough of that during the day. I mean, if you'd asked me out because you found me pretty or uh, interesting, then I would have said yes. Yes, But I do find you pretty. (laughs) Oh, then, well, yeah, well, I'll see you tomorrow then. (laughs) Got to backtrack. Backtrack. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so she finally, uh, you know, he asks her out. But um, 
Yeah, I mean that, yeah. that that sort of first date. Obviously, it's not really a date as such, is it? They she, he kind of turns up to meet her after work, and she says she feels awful and she's had a bad day, and but very much he he tries to be gentlemanly around it, and she says, "Well, are you going to walk me home, or shall I get murdered?" <laughs> yes. I, I, I couldn't work out exactly where she. Again, this is poor geography on on the part of the film, but I mean, if she works at the Royal Free Hospital and could walk home. But I couldn't quite work out exactly where because there was some arsenal graffiti on her front door. Yes, there was. It was. It, it seemed rather sort of a slightly dodgy part. So, but then he starts talking about Camden. Camden has lots of cafes and restaurants. So whether she lives more the Camden way mm, yeah. uh, from the Royal Free. At yeah. least, it's, at, then, least, at least, if you're walking back, it's downhill. Yeah. <laughs> mm. uh, but then when after he sort of says goodnight to her and they arrange to meet for the next day you have the big swelling music and the kind of almost like a singing in the rain moment as he then uh, cartwheels in front of a giant moon um, on Hampstead Heath I'm assuming <laughs> we're back we're back there <laughs> and that was something that I noticed from because again it was a lot easier to find reviews of this film from sort of American publications and there were some in the, the New York Times, the LA Times, and they were. I think a couple of them referred to that part as sort of as something. And I'm not. I couldn't quite tell if it was a a dig or or not at the uh, because I mean, bear in mind this was directed by Mel Smith, um, that saying they're kind of sacrificing reality for a gag, um, and the whole sort of him doing cartwheels in front of the oversized moon. Um, I I thought it was quite funny. I was, yeah, it was, you know, it was, yeah, hyper, just hyper romantic, wasn't it? Again, you know, is it a dream? You know, this is what he would like to be doing is cartwheeling in front of a moon. It's like a fantasy of what happens when you finally get the girl. Yeah. Just got <laughs> girl very briefly. <laughs> well, I think uh, she, yeah. she made it quite clear that um, she didn't need 10 expensive dinners to know if, if she liked him or not, so. Yeah. <laughs> I think the term that was it on a promise, pretty yeah. much. Yeah, he's got to, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he knows. He knows he's going to get lucky the next day. <laughs> yeah, and this is the part, and the the next part where he goes round that seems to get, and and again from from all kinds of people that I interact with on social media, this is the part that gets a lot of people excited for for yeah. one way or another. The the scene in her flat. Yes, the scene in her flat is probably the best sex scene. <laughs> I've I've seen. <laughs> it did. Well, it's actually the most amusing, anyway. Yeah. Let's say we don't cut to a you know a, a door closing or a door opening, and then find them sitting smoking cigarettes afterwards. Uh, we, we're we're not in that period of film history. <laughs> no, or sort of silhouettes through a net curtain or something random. Yeah, fireworks going off trains going <laughs> through tunnels. Uh, <laughs> we don't have any of those substitutes here. Yeah. Um, as it's quite a sort of energetic, athletic, very funny. We have her. Yes, yeah. I mean she. Bowl cereal. Bottom of landing. There's a lot more flesh than I remembered. <laughs> I was quite surprised actually when I watched it again. And go, oh, Emma Thompson's boobs. <laughs> Don't remember those. <laughs> That must have been one of those dodgy websites where it kind of logs everything in the minute and second that you see a bit of tit. Yeah, all per- it just but it, but it does also feel very wholesome, although it's quite a sort of uh, rampant sex scene because it is so infused with humour um, and silliness. 
and over the topness. Um, yes, it doesn't feel doesn't feel very sexy. No, and there's <laughs> you know parts with buttered toast and so forth. <laughs> and if someone could make me a gif of that cactus on the uh, top of the <laughs> piano, I would be eternally grateful. <laughs> uh, yes, the piano. Yes. Everything yeah. gets involved, <laughs> and and I mean I, I try not to put too much thought into it, but you know, kind of thinking about the the logistics and the physics of how all this was going on, especially on yeah. the on the piano, and I kind of thought better, I'll just leave it. You know, some some things are best left unsaid. <laughs> yeah, I must, have, but yes, it's probably a, a, a sort of hard to choreograph something like that than a sort of full on dance routine in a movie. <laughs> um, that must have taken yeah. a long time to film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But yeah, definitely worth watching uh, for for that scene. <laughs> and um, I suppose in his case, it was actually worth getting sacked because um, yes, t- turns up the late. Downside to this um, experience. So yeah, how long was he there? Like five, six hours. Jesus. He sort of arrives in the afternoon, and if he's missed a show at seven seven thirty, they were at it five or six hours. <laughs> yeah, I guess Sting was unavailable for this. <laughs> Yeah, so he's uh, <laughs> left on set. Was but, it worth it? Probably. Uh, well, I think he seems, you know, fairly chilled about it. Uh, but yes, does get fired for being late. Uh, but at least sort of Kate turned up afterwards, and you know they they had a laugh. You know, they're graffitiing the poster, and I mean that was yes, sort of drawing the eyes and the sort of beard on him, the yeah. big big prat above it. Yeah. But yes, but before that, she has that. Um, she's um, terrible. Oh, you know, you did all of that. You know, you got fired just for a one night stand. Yeah. Oh, you're going to be so easy to tease. <laughs> <laughs> she looks like the sort of person who'd have fun doing that sort of thing. Yeah, but yes, no, yeah. So she gets kind of fully engaged in. Um, uh, I think that that the wardrobe clearing montage must come fairly soon after that. Yeah, where you get to see his awful. <gasps> And that's to the um, Madness track, isn't it? Yeah, well, that says the sort of... Uh, well, yeah. I'd like to say the big musical number of the film, but we, <laughs> we, we have several of those later. But this is yeah. the... Um, I mean, this is like something I love, actually, but the, the sort of everyone singing along to It Must Be Love. Yes, which, again, is a very North London... You know, Madness and Suggs were a North London Camden band. Mm. Uh, so quite, obviously quite fitting in terms of that sort of musical... Uh, geography of London, and they managed yeah, to get yeah. Suggs, Suggs, a little cameo for Suggs in there as well. Suggs in there, yes. Oh, yes. We've had quite a few little cameos in this, um, in the film, don't we? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Suggs is there. Yes, so she kind of clears out his wardrobe and everything. Yes, oh, that was <laughs> the the Superman pajamas. I mean, and they they looked like they were knit, knitted as well. Yeah. <laughs> oh, does it get some singing underpants as well? Yeah. Just, it was the 80s stop frame animation underpants singing it must be love <laughs> and the um, whole audience of the sort of row the Ron Anderson show yeah I always wonder with these sort of choreographed things at like theatres or, or sporting events and stuff like that where they they get whole crowds to sing and I wonder at what point do they sort of approach them and I mean they're obviously there for something else but they might yeah. say right we're making a new film we want you to sing along with or at least move your arms in motion I suppose that must be a bit of fun if you're involved no was there an audience in the scene of the Ron Anderson show earlier was it just just that on that same shooting day Hmm, I'm not sure because I I mean 
yeah. I watched a clip of um, Film 89 on, on YouTube and they were behind the scenes of this. And I guess it was hard to tell. They showed the clip where it was Ron Anderson and the understudy doing the sort of skit where he was the blind man. Oh, Char- yeah, Charlie. Yeah, and um, they didn't have... Well, I think they had a couple of people in the front rows of of the theatre just... but. Um, yeah. Uh, it did. It didn't have a full theatre at the time. Yeah. But um, okay. yeah, because I, I remember seeing. I mean, the, it's all this stuff now, and especially you know these days, everything they're trying to make things go viral. And there mm. was um, there was a football match, and they were singing. What's that Savage Garden song? Didn't like it, but um, and it was a football crowd singing this song that seems quite romantic, and it just seemed like really odd and I know that's the idea you know it gets shared on YouTube and, and Facebook and stuff but again they've managed to convince these football fans to sing along to this probably before or after a match but yeah could could well be I don't know certainly in the, when they had the um, recent film of the star is born he went in um, I think it was during a Willie Nelson concert and just did his kind of 10 minute well he had like 10-15 minutes to perform his numbers at these festivals around other acts, so okay. they have, yeah, so yeah, that must have been how they did go in yeah. on another show. I wonder if that's what they did for the Live Aid bit of Bohemian Rhapsody. Still their mm. crowd. <laughs> yeah. Just use computers. Just computers, yeah. yeah weird. Not so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that looked weird. Now Dexter is unemployed, and we have the gag about Kate doesn't. Well, she, she's going to struggle to cope with a, an unemployed actor boyfriend. <laughs> yes, so he um, goes back to see his agent. Yeah, um, brilliantly played by Annie Ma- Anna Massey, who's uh, yes, you've been off the market rather a long time, <laughs> um, struggling to find him uh, auditions to go to. But again, this is something I, I, I guess it's probably a, an actor thing, you know, or a fil- in the films and TV where they show actors where they have to have auditions that either go badly or they're so odd. And, and they're talking about um, they go for a Burkhoff play. And of course, <laughs> yeah. there are a couple of different avenues where you'd know Burkhoff. Mm. Um, either you're from theatre or you like 80s movies. Um, you know, happily, yes. this podcast covers both of those avenues. Yeah, so yeah, you will have an audience who knows Stephen Burke. <laughs> yes, this, this is where I cut in the the clip from Octopussy. But um, I mean, just little silly things like that, where he sort yeah. of goes to play a, an angry Englishman. <laughs> yeah, doesn't quite have the same uh, delivery as the other other chaps there. <laughs> he he yeah. seemed miffed rather than angry. And the same goes for your friend. Fuck off. You fuck off. <laughs> yeah, I'm not surprised he didn't get that job. No. Um, but we also have in that that sort of montage of sort of auditions and things at the um, agent studio. You know, the other two actors there. Um, you know, and here's a script from. Woody Allen, and here's a script from Steven Spielberg, and here, and I think isn't Jeff offered the uh, like a GIF commercial or Sh- something shaken like that. back, I think, shaken back or some, <laughs> some cleaning product, uh, whilst the others are all being offered great things. Yeah. And one of those other actors, obviously much forgotten now, Angus Deaton is one of the other actors in that um, scene. Yeah, of course, really? it, you know, shaken back <laughs> might be more up his street. Yeah. <laughs> 
so um, yes, so we have that nice little again another little sort of montage scene of. Um, this is where the sort of second half of the film kicks in, where um, <laughs> there is the the offer of a role in a upcoming musical. Yeah, so yeah. he goes to the sort of open auditions, doesn't he, for a new RSC musical of... Elephant. Elephant. The Elephant Man, the musical. With a... Oh, I love the fact she says, oh, it's probably got an exclamation mark after it. Oh, it had to have, yes. <laughs> it's probably quite easy, and it, you know, reminding me of that scene from, from Friends where Joey goes for an audition as a dancer because he lied on his CV. <laughs> Um, yeah. and can't do anything whereas you know and here Dexter's so out of step he can't sing he can't dance but that seems to be exactly what they're looking for the awkward yes out of place <laughs> misunderstood man I suppose, I suppose if you're if you're an actor that might be the dream you know if you, you sort of sit there thinking oh, I've bombed this I've done so bad and they end up offering you the best part you can get yeah get the lead the title role the titular character yeah yeah and this was part of what I'd kind of, again, having seen this so long ago and probably I was probably even drunk or, or something, but you kind of forget about how much of an integral part of the film this musical is. I had forgotten, yeah, how long it was and how much of the musical you actually get to see in here. Because um, I've just clutched on to like two lines from a song and I remembered that over these years, which I sometimes randomly sing um and had forgotten that there was like i don't know four four production numbers do you see um, both in rehearsals and then kind of on the opening night i, I think so because like, like yeah. fully staged numbers it's yeah, astonishing <laughs> i mean I, I i can't remember if i mentioned this before but you know, i'm a massive fan of the concept of films within films or you know, productions within films. And I, you know, again, not perhaps giving this the, the credit it deserves, it takes up so much of it. It's not just a, a, a song. They've pretty much put on half a stage show. Yeah. yeah. And yes. And of the sort of quality that you would have seen in the West End at that time. Probably. You know, in, in terms of like costumes and sets and performances and kind of plot and character. I mean, all of that was fully realised. You could imagine that this was was a musical. Yeah. I, and, you know, I suppose at this, time, at this time, you know, you had these kind of musicals with people kind of, oh, it's really strange they're making a musical of, you know, Phantom of the Opera or hmm. The Hunchback of Notre Dame or something. So it was <laughs> very much of this time. This would have been, you know, the, the 80s when Lloyd Webber was at, you know, massive. I mean, yeah. still is, but um, at one point when you, you're talking about the opening night and jumping ahead a little bit, you've got Melvin Bragg coming yes. out, introducing it. and But there would have been a South Bank show special on this, you know, the new amazing musical. Exactly. Know, but it, the RSC. Th yeah. There is, and, and again, this is something that some of the reviewers that I read picked up, that this is something that as a Curtis trope or the film anyway this is something that they then tended to avoid because this was this was bordering on taking the piss out of stage shows yes um it wasn't i mean obviously there were you know nods to the the production values and and the effort that goes in but it was 
it was almost like you can take an idea, be stupid with it, and make shitloads of money. Yes. And, of course, that's what Richard Curtis has done for the last well, of course. <laughs> 30 years. But, yes, yeah, so I think, you know, at this time, uh, the RSC had done Les Miserables probably, like, three years before. So it was still... Mm. So Les Miserables was a relatively new show um, at this point. And, it was, again, it was a bit of a surprise that the Royal Shakespeare Company had done a musical that they did at the Barbican Centre where they were resident. And then it transferred into the West End, so now this is a very familiar thing to us. You know, the National Theatre does a musical that then does really well in the West End. But at this time, it was a really unusual thing for someone like that to do, a company mm. like that to do. And then you'd had like Phantom of the Opera, which is set in that sort of period, same sort of period, the sort of nineteenth century. So it was yeah quite a more radical now <laughs> then than it was now. Yeah. But I think also. Um, that because Andrew Webber was so big and he himself was such a, a caricature of himself, I think I'm pretty sure that the spitting image, which a lot of these people were involved in, had an Android Webber puppet. Oh, they did. I, um, I mean, I, I remember that. Yeah. He, this, he was like yes. a, this tiny, yeah. shrunken head. Yeah, it was a really weird thing. So they'd already been as a kind of that generation of people, and mm. you know, of which these were part had already been making fun of um, Andrew Lloyd Webber in Spitting Image. So I suppose this is kind of part of that, as, a, as opposed to where Richard Curtis goes to next in his career. Yeah. I mean, uh, this obviously leans quite heavily on the producers yes. as well. I mean, obviously, we, there's a there's a different motive in, in that. But, mm. you know, the, the fact that this is... And again, you know, throughout the, the opening night, Kate, Emma Thompson, she's scoffing at the whole thing and I mean at no point is she made out to be a particularly obvious culture mm. you know she's not I mean she, she's clearly intelligent and mm. very clever but mm. at no point is she made out to be this sort of huge buff of theatre or anything but she sits there scoffing while everyone else seems to be lapping it up yes Geraldine James uh, you know sitting there you know sort of in floods of tears <laughs> Which I must admit, you know, when I was a teenager and saw Phantom the first time, you know, I cried at the end of that. Oh. So, you know, I probably would have been. <laughs> and I think this is the only thing that is actually dated from the movie. Now, I think I wouldn't be surprised if there was the Elephant Man, the musical. Hmm. It, it, we've, we've had so many weird musicals over the past 30 years. And even when you think of something like The Greatest Showman, <laughs> Um, you know, set around a sort of freak show, mm. uh, becoming this huge sensation thing. You know, we're only you know a couple more steps on for us actually having a fully realised production of Elephant. Um, I think that is a, a crowdsourcing campaign waiting to happen. Perhaps, perhaps if they do, then this film might get a little bit more love. <laughs> it's um, so I think I mean it was hard. I had to go to eBay to get a DVD of it. Um, oh. It's not widely sort of broadcast anymore. I remember it used to be on in the sort of nineties. It used to be on ITV on a Saturday night occasionally. But yeah, I wasn't aware of that because I've just had the the DVD on my shelf for, for so long. <laughs> <laughs> it seemed everybody knew the tall guy. Yeah, it was you know part of the sort of canon <laughs> of classic British cinema. Well, I mean, as as part of a, I suppose it sounds awful to call it like a time capsule, but everyone in it is at a certain point in their career where you can see the trajectory mm. and again I know we talked about that earlier and you look at you know I mean Rowan Atkinson 
is still doing Johnny English films. Uh, yeah, so he'd done Blackadder. They'd done Richard Curtis and yeah. um, Rowan Axon had done sort of Blackadder throughout the 80s and they ran mm. up to this. And then he goes into the sort of Mr. Bean. But I mean, world, he, he'd been yeah. in Never Say Never Again as well. And, you know, things like that where things, sort of t- they take all these tangents. And I mean, I, I didn't realise until they showed a documentary about Mel Smith maybe a year or so ago. I'm saying this sort of late 2019, whenever you're listening to this. Um, (laughs) And there was a lot in there about both the tall guy and his various involvement in Mm theatre, you know, sort of in in, at this time. And you kind of think like there was a lot going on that just because it's not widely available now, you know, there's probably still plenty of archive stuff Mm -hmm. around. I mean, unfortunately, it took pretty much took Mel Smith dying for a lot of it to come out. Yes, I mean, that's the thing, obviously, with theatre. It's, you know, an ephemeral compared to sort of TV and, and films. So, yeah, when we look back at their careers, we do tend to focus more on the television because mm. it is available and, um, uh, yeah, not the nine o'clock news, which you mentioned earlier. And then, alas, Smith and Jones, which he did with Griff Reese Jones, who gets a, <laughs> a name check cameo <laughs> a bit later. Um, but, yes, this was his first directing gig, and I, I'm not quite sure how he you know, made that transition, I suppose, just being part of the sort of Richard Curtis family. But yeah. he did direct some more films, so... Um, I mean, he did the first Mr Bean film, I think. He did, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so obviously they're all all intertwined. Yes, usually the way. <laughs> but, um, yes, this is sort of the... Um, just sort of thinking about sort of, um, sort of Jeff Goldblum at this point in his career. You know, he'd been obviously making films for a long time but he'd only just I think started making comedies around this time mm. um, so I mean I think I first noticed him in the in the fly yeah uh, which was a few years earlier but the previous year he'd done Earth Girls Are Easy I remember that <laughs> I'm surprised you've not done an episode on that uh, it's on the list <laughs> an, an early Jim Carrey entry as well so this was yeah it's kind of about the cusp of sort of Jeff Goldman becoming that sort of more comedic uh, sort of twinkle in his eye uh, sort of character which he continues even in more ser- you know, more action films like Jurassic Park and yeah. I mean, Independence was, Day yeah. I mean they, they were two huge films but then yeah. you know he, he was in one of the four films that, well, the, the recent one the one that I actually quite enjoyed um, yes. <laughs> and he was so good in that because he played it it was like Dexter with a blue beard on another planet <laughs> yes <laughs> but yeah and and it just it worked and, and I know in, in that film it was a, a supporting role it was quite a small role really but um, it just worked so well and, and from there he seems to have become this sort of cult icon you know there was that curious um, giant statue that appeared in London <laughs> yeah. You have to Google giant statue of Gough Goldblum to have a look at it. It's like, how did it suddenly appear and where did it go? <laughs> I mean, I, 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 it was from the Jurassic Park bit, wasn't it, where his sort of shirt was open? Yes. It's just random. Sort of lounge, but it was like massive yeah. statue that suddenly appeared in London. Um I wonder if I, curious. I haven't seen the most recent Jurassic Park film, but I know he has a, a a role in that. I wonder if it was that would have been around the same time. Maybe it's some sort of odd yeah. marketing ploy. Yes. <laughs> yes. Back to Elephant. 
about to elephant and oh. yes. <laughs> I mean, we, we do get some some of the cliches in there. I mean, he does have a, a what's it call it a fling, a one night stand with with his co star, which of course comes up yes, later on. Was, yeah. Uh, so yes, so we have the sort of rehearsals and um, yes, it's all the just like fully. I just still can't get over these kind of fully staged musical numbers <laughs> <laughs> um, in there. Great tunes. <laughs> I, I mean, it's it's the weird thing is is and again, you know, the, this film isn't widely available. I mean, it's not. I don't think it's even on sort of streaming or or iTunes or anything like that. But. Um, you know, I did look after I watched it trying to get hold of the soundtrack because I thought, you know, something like this, they must be a release where it has, you know, almost like you'd have an original cast recording of Les Mis or Phantom or something like that, where you'd have an original cast recording of Elephant. But unfortunately, I can't, if it exists, I can't find it. Yeah, there's some, there are some um, of the musical numbers on YouTube. Yeah. So if people can't see the whole film but just want to see this very curious um, elephant uh, uh, musical <laughs> number. And um, let me promise you, I'll be doing my very best to get some of those clips into the podcast. Yes. Um, <laughs> we can do the, the take a deep breath, prepare for the work, <laughs> the ugliest man in the universe. Take a deep breath, prepare for the worst, the ugliest man in the universe. That's like... It's so well put together. (laughs) (laughs) So you could have been in it. Well, clearly I could have been cast as Elephant with Ah. that beautiful singing voice. I just, you know, it's just such a beautiful kind of rhyming couplet. <laughs> but um, I mean, even little things, you know, some of the comments about packing, he packing his trunk, yes. and it went with a priest or a monk. <laughs> some of the ways they did it, or look at, you know, I've got a beard and people think I'm weird. Then from the bearded lady. So you have um, those numbers, but then you do have that um, dance routine where you've got all those elephants doing a tap dance. Oh God! And then, <laughs> but they're actually made up like elephants, not the yeah. elephant man. It's yeah, just... the elephants. Yes, yeah, so you've got a sort of dancing troupe of tap dancing elephants, <laughs> which doesn't quite fit in with the kind of the rest of the nineteenth century um, ambience. No, but then in the rest of the film, I, <laughs> the rest of the show. I guess if you've set, I mean, if you've stepped through the door of Elephant, the musical, <laughs> yeah. and and you're still here at this point, then you're you're kind of invested and you're here for the long haul. So, <laughs> uh, but yeah. So he has a, as you say, a flirtation with um, his uh, glamorous co-star um, in in the musical. Yeah, um, which does rear its ugly head again a bit later mm. it's strange because i, I you know not I, I suppose the fact that this has become part of it maybe it is a, a cliche or, or something I, I don't know but um you know it's it's quite obvious from the beginning you know from that that you know she sits down and next to him and when they talk about aren't you married she says, oh yes i have a husband he's lovely <laughs> just sort of things like that and 
Yes, yeah, so it doesn't. She actually, it doesn't. She, I mean, again, this is another in the same way we've had sort of Carmen being quite sexually aggressive and uh, Kate kind of leading the way, going, "What? What? No sex then?" <laughs> um, you know, again, she's. You know, it's it's the woman that is kind of you know seducing sort of Jeff Goldblum here, isn't it? You know, and they, she takes him up to some weird prop room where uh, she has her wicked way with him next to a twelve foot bear. Yes. <laughs> Not quite sure where they are. Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, she's really into taxidermy. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so kind of all the three, the three women there are all kind of yeah, the, the sort of sexual leaders. Mm. Uh, but yes, no, the bear must be quite off-putting. <laughs> yes, God, <laughs> <laughs> it could, could have been it could have been an elephant. <laughs> yeah, so he then goes back, and you know, clearly guilt-ridden, you know, when he goes back to to share the bed with Kate afterwards. Hmm. I mean, it all seems, you know, hunky do and it kind of gets forgotten about, it doesn't get mentioned, but um, no. when they, so, they have the opening night... Yeah, so I think that leads into the kind of... And here's Melvin Bragg introducing the opening night, so we sort of jump straight to that, haven't we? Yeah, and, you know, Kate arrives at the theatre in an ambulance going on blues and twos, and everyone's there with the backstage nerves, and you've got a little bit of slapstick when they have the fog machine that sort of goes a little bit too far. Yes. Um, and, um, yes, the um, actor with his alcohol, this <laughs> bottle of booze hidden in his uh, hat. Yeah. Uh, and all those kind of uh, sort of characters that we, ex- you know, would expect to see. <laughs> um, and, and one thing I, I, I will mention, purely because I, I can't get through the musical part without mentioning the final song, um, it's somewhere up in heaven there's an angel <laughs> with big ears It's just, I mean, what a number to finish on. <laughs> but at least he doesn't sneeze. <laughs> at least the injections cured his sneezing because earlier when he was meant to be a dead, you know, meant to be dead in the Rowan Atkinson show, he sneezed. <laughs> and that's what, you know, you know, Rowan, Ron, Ron, Rowan <laughs> <laughs> just didn't want to be upstaged. That would be a loud sneeze if it was an elephant. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, yes, yeah, so we. Um... Yeah. But then they have their their backstage party afterwards because you know the first night has gone remarkably well. Uh, it's gone amazingly well. Yeah. It's been yeah, it's been a very much loved uh, show. Although opening houses are usually packed with people who have drunk heavily in the bar beforehand and are friends and family. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> Slightly not representative it's of not the usually rep- an opening night is not usually representative of who's going to be there for the rest of the show. <laughs> well, well, hopefully, when we do get the inevitable sequel, um, you know, Je- Jeff Goldblum and Emma Thompson are doing well at the moment. They should, yeah. you know, maybe they've had a kid <laughs> and they can call it. Yes. Yeah, they've had a kid and they call it Short Guy. Or something. I don't know. Uh, Ron turns up at the party being an absolute dick. Of course, with his name dropping, have we forgotten his wonderful oh, name yes. dropping? His 
best buddy, Prince Charles. Yeah. Again, <laughs> something that dates the film because they talk about Charles yeah. and die. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, send it to Buckingham Palace. It'll get to me. <laughs> that was a was, reminds me of a sketch of Derek and Clive where they they pardon my language again, but they said if you write a letter to cunt London and it goes to the Director General of the BBC. <laughs> yeah, I'll put cunt London on. You yeah, cunt London. Cunt TV London. centre. No, cunt not even TV, TV centre. No. Don't have to put TV centre. Cunt London. London. It reaches the Director General of the BBC. You can be yeah. certain of that. Yeah. But, mm. uh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> And then um, the, was it the director was talking about his next project, the play about Richard the Third. Oh yes. I, so about um, I, I've a hunch oh. I'll be king. Yes. <laughs> um, we also get the cameo of Mel Smith yes. in that sequence as well. So I'd love to see Mel Smith yeah, as, as drunk, even man. though he's vomiting. <laughs> and yeah, so we we know because when they go back to the flat, um, Kate goes in and packs her bag straight away. Um, and we get all the sort of flashbacks to the the parts where she and, and again this is showing you know sort of whether it's intuition or, or intelligence or both mm-hmm. that she knows that they've had an affair because of their sort of interaction yes because yes and it's it's the kind of reverse of what you you know you know he was hoping to cover it up by not mentioning her or not acknowledging each other is actually what says you you have to know someone very well not to say thank you when someone pours you a drink Um, and then when you mentioned her name you always pause as though you'd given something away Mm. Um, so those were her the two clues uh, that he'd had her had an affair well it wasn't as he's tried to explain it wasn't an affair it was a one-night stand it meant nothing to which she rightly says well then whilst you were there i meant nothing to you Mm. um so she seems very grown up and just kind of walks walks out, you know, hysterics. And then we don't really see what happens to her when she leaves. The story is all about, you know, uh, Dexter and his woes. Yeah. So we're not quite sure. We don't know what she's getting up to. She just, you know, we don't see her again for like five minutes or so because we have another montage sequence <laughs> yes the, the the permanent or the constant reminders the constant of loss reminders every song is about breaking up every uh, everything you watch is about infidelity so <laughs> <laughs> um yes he's having a miserable time without her yeah and the old cliche of getting drunk on a park bench in Hampstead Heath with a blind man with a blind man <laughs> Uh, yes, and Charlie's there as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one thing I noticed that uh, again, this is something that is a bit more modern. I guess these days, if because there was the joke early on that the blind man's allergic to his guide dog. Um, yes. Of course, now guide dogs would probably just give him a labradoodle. Yes, they were. They've solved that problem. Yes. Yeah. That, I mean, it <laughs> removes the joke, but yeah, it does, we're just yeah. overthinking this now. Yeah. But yes, his joke at this point is something about yes, the best thing is to be blind. <laughs> Every woman since 1945 has looked like Mae West, <laughs> like that. <laughs> that was a joke in um, Curb Your Enthusiasm. I think it was where Larry somehow I can't remember becomes friends with a blind guy, and he's going out with a girl who told him that she's a model, and he says, "I need to know she's pretty," and then sort of Larry sort of tells him, "Look, she's really not." <laughs> and there's this whole <laughs> gag about that, but. I suppose in, you don't really get the, the time to build on that in this. It's um, sort of a, a quite a short scene. 
yes. But they yes, as you say, getting drunk. But there's worse places to be drunk than looking out from Hampstead Heath. <laughs> yeah, unless you're the blind guy. Yeah. Uh, so the next night of Elephant, Ron, there's a they're showing the TV coverage of whichever awards it is, and um, this is where they they mention Griffiths Jones and yes. yeah. various actors. It was John Inman, wasn't it, doing the the hosting? Yes. <laughs> Weirdly, and Ron wins this comedy award, and and his date on the TV is Kate. Oh, yes, it is. How did that happen? How did that happen? Not. I think we're just going to have to go with uh, plot contrivance. Or either that, or <laughs> can't imagine how they would have met each other. R- Ron, she... Ron is such an asshole that he had to do it just to spite Dexter. Yes, yes, he would have been. Yeah, maybe he was stalking her around the hospital, but yeah. you never got the impression they ever really met because obviously he was fired. So I... how? I suppose only met at the opening night. Yeah, and even then, I, I'm sure there was a clip of her looking bored while he was prattling on about. Yeah. Prince Charles. So. They probably she just wanted a nice night out at an awards yeah, show. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and it's this point that um, Dexter's already in makeup for the performance, <laughs> um, and goes cycling off to the hospital. Yeah. Um, I guess from the West End to the Royal Free Hospital, of course, most of the makeup sort of at some point. Yeah, <laughs> it's not that sturdy. Yeah, so he has, you know, I've got to get, doesn't he get pulled over by someone or something? And it's oh, of like course. Yeah, uh, no, he doesn't cycle, does he? He cycles to Ron, kid, yeah. kidnaps Ron. Kidnaps him, ties up Ron. And then steals his Aston Martin. Yes, and then drives. Hmm. Uh, so we've gone for, yeah, we're not going to work out that route, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, uh, that makes more sense. And they he's pulled out, I must get to the hospital, and then he gets escort, because they go, oh, yes. <laughs> awful facial disfigurement. <laughs> Well, I love one of the trivia facts of this was, I mean, it was apparently that was actually Rowan Atkinson's car. I think he is a, a collector of Aston Martins. But also the number plate that was used was Comic or COM1C, which apparently is owned by Jimmy Tarbuck. So. Oh, so not that that's a nice looking number plate. That must be worth a bob or two. Probably yeah. worth the car. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure which, quite which, you know, going back to a Bond thing, I'm not sure which sort of make of Aston, or model of Aston Martin it was, but um, yeah. My, I'm sure one of your Twitter followers will tell us. <laughs> I'm sure. They always do. And of course, being driven by the elephant man just for some real yeah. authenticity. Yeah, so he gets to the hospital and in the sort of great sort of uh, tradition of... Uh, bumbling men trying to win back the girl of their dreams uh, which we have seen subsequently in front of an audience uh, in front of an audience making a fool of themselves he um does the big speech about what, what a foolish man he's been she actually calls him adulterer at one point yeah yeah, yeah she's still quite uh, yeah she's been quite mean she's been well quite honest mm. <laughs> um but yes, with a whole audience watching, he gets his girl. Yeah, and, and I guess this, yeah, because you, this is the whole part where we've got various people, you know, in various states of injury and illness, you know, <laughs> and again played for laughs. But yeah. you know, so, well, I'll die again if you yeah. don't. I mean, they've, they've already had to give CPR to Bob. And another weird tangent I thought was, um, you know, there's some guidance for songs to sort of do chest compressions too 
and I think at the moment it's staying alive by the Bee Gees. <laughs> but there was, for quite some time, um, the idea was that you'd do the chest compressions to the beat of Nelly the Elephant. No. Yeah, no, it was. That's... <laughs> Seriously, no, I, I believe me, I've done it several times. And, um, and, and you're supposed to do it to the rhythm of <laughs> Nelly the Elephant. <laughs> I wonder whether that... Um, well... That's a shame they didn't incorporate that in. Yeah. Although we probably wouldn't have believed it. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I, I don't know if that was sort of widely told first aid advice yeah. back, in, back then. But. First off, you call 999. I know. Then, no kissing. You only kiss your missus on the lips. You push hard and fast here on the sovereign to stay alive. Remember, call 999. Push hard and fast to stay alive. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. It's moved on now, thankfully. But yeah. <laughs> And we sort of get a bit of a repeat of the sort of joke earlier, because you said, you know, something about going, just going out for dinner. And you go, oh, yes, just go out for dinner. And she goes, oh, what, what, no sex after? So, you know, she's obviously completely fully forgiven him in her mind. <laughs> well, I guess, you know, the, the sex must have been that good. It must have been, yeah. If he yeah. was, yeah. Five or six hours and late to work. <laughs> and, she, you know, she, she's forgiven him for his philandering and, and whatever just because he's, oh, well, he's good in bed. Yeah. <laughs> and he's the star of a, presumably, a West End hit. I kind of think, I kind of assumed he would just get fired again, cause, <laughs> like he did earlier for being late. <laughs> well, Charlie seemed to do well as the understudy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so whether he's lost his, lost his gig there. Yeah, but he got, he got the girl. Yeah, he got the girl, and, and that's how most Richard Curtis films end. We don't wonder what happens to them afterwards. No. Um, so the epilogue here is another mon- montage, isn't it? Singing? Do we get more singing at this point? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's um, and then it finishes on finishes on it must be love again. Yeah. Yeah, but um, <laughs> it's um, yeah, it's, it's nice to to have that old familiar feeling of it it doesn't matter how you do in life as long as you get the girl of your dreams yeah like most films <laughs> just like real life it's just like <laughs> yeah yeah so that's the tall guy yeah. which um i i love just as much this time i mean i have seen it you know a number of times over the years you know i think it still holds up really well yeah it's day and age and i think it's mainly because those the three women are quite kind of you know, sort of interesting women. Well, recently, Richard Curtis women's haven't been quite so interesting. No. Uh, this year's yesterday. Um, yeah. I think the last film of his I would have seen probably Love Actually, and that was through Gritted Teeth or Gritted yeah, Eyes or so whatever. I'm not a huge fan of Love Actually. No. Apart from probably the Emma Thompson <laughs> uh, CD opening scene um, will break your heart. But yes, the rest of it is. Well, if you marry Hans Gruber, what do you expect? Yeah, <laughs> yeah up to no good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, again, like you know, taking that point on, I think you know, it's it's quite easy with these eighties films, and you know, you look at, you know, what could they have done differently, you know, and, and how, and it, you know, so much has changed, you know, in terms of what's acceptable, what isn't in those thirty years. But as you say, the the attitudes of this seem pretty much I'd say spot yeah. on but they're, they're I, in the I, right I way think actually, yes in terms of that there isn't I'm not there's nothing quite so cringy as in some of the other films no um, because she's more proactive in 
initiating the sort of date and that whole thing although he is keeps going he's not you know he's never actually kind of pursues it as as much and, and it's her that does the kind of pursuing which is quite refreshing yes he has the one night fling and i suppose you needed some thing of devastation in order for there to be that final romance because they'd already got together earlier so there had to be some kind of it's got to be uh, peril hasn't it yeah, otherwise, where where would where would it have gone? We would have just had a great opening night, and and then what? That would have done uh, for so, me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we were just happy. I think it should have just ended with the you know the Olivier's the following year with him <laughs> <laughs> scooping up the award for best actor in a musical. God. In full costume. Which got really meta, and then there could have been a film of the stage show oh. which he could have starred in. Yeah. Could have seen both. <laughs> Again, that's the sequel. Elephant is still sorry. Elephant is still running, and oh. yes, he's still doing it uh, thirty years later. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think I think that's it. Call Richard Curtis now. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I'm sure we'll think of some way to fucking ruin it. But. <laughs> but yeah, so I think actually, as you say, it's in compared to some other films from the eighties, this one actually, you know, isn't isn't too too cringy. No. And, um, and we've got the whole, you know, sort of spectacle of the musical. I, I think from, I, I, I'm sure there must be some, whether it's a podcast or a blog or Twitter or something where they've got things like, um, you know, films within films or plays within films, because I, I know it was a, yeah, you know. Yeah, I mean, I certainly, there is a, a Twitter called, I think it is called Films in Films, okay. where they do lots of screen grabs of, uh, I think mainly real films that have appeared in other films. Right. Um, whereas you're more interested in the fictitious films. Yeah. They... yeah. I mean, I, I, I was quite happy. I mean, I know a lot of people complained about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that they were bored by the the TV and films within the film. And I, I would have been quite happy to watching more of those. <laughs> so I, I haven't seen that yet, but I've, I've, I've heard a lot about it. And I have some that sounds like it's right up my sesame. Oh, no, absolutely. <laughs> if, you, if you love watching films, fictitious films and TV in films then you're going to be very happy watching that film but then I guess that I mean that's all that's a Tarantino thing anyway is that yeah. I mean I, I'm not going to sound like I, I know what I'm talking about but you know <laughs> a lot of didn't the Grindhouse weren't, weren't they like trailers or you know they yeah were they had bits... a whole lot of trailers for fictitious films yeah and they talked within to... that, with before before the screenings of those and then but... Pulp Fiction where they had was it the what are they called Fox Force 5 that pilot she did yeah. That probably turned out to be something like the Kill Bill troop. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, it's probably, I'd say, at least an hour of the film's running time is made up of uh, films with uh, TV. Why did I waste my cinema voucher on Rambo 5? I could have gone to see that. Yes, you definitely made the wrong choice there. Yeah, well, it's Rambo, so, yeah. Yeah. I've got to stay on brand. I was, I was sitting in the cinema in front of, um, in in the row behind me was Aunt Sally, Eunice Dubs. Oh, really? Sitting in the cinema watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood behind me. So. Extra bonus. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any gossip? No, she left before I could get a chance to talk to her. Oh, as long as she didn't leave halfway through the, the film, that no, would have been... No, she stayed to the end. Oh, <laughs> oh phew, that's a relief. I could have broken a lot of people's hearts there. Oh, yes. <laughs> Oh well, um, as you say, Ellen, that was the tall guy. Um, thank you for bringing this Betamax copy because, as I say, it was hard to get hold of and yeah. massively appreciated. Um, now, obviously, our, our paths have crossed before and on mostly James Bond stuff, but I mean, you 
do a lot around film obviously it's you know you get lectures and talks now um you've done appearances on on other podcasts now um where can we find you um so if you want to follow me on my twitter it's um chesh ellen someone else had the full name uh, so it's chesh ellen um and there i would sort of, i just mainly talk about films i've seen and um, talks i'm doing and sort of books i'm writing so the next thing coming out um the BFI, the British Film Institute, have got this big musical season, continuing with the musicals theme over the next few months. And they've brought out some new DVDs and Blu-rays. And I've written the um, essay um, in the booklet for Hair, the musical. Sadly, it's 1979, so outside of the Betamax. Otherwise, we could have been talking about Hair. Um, So I think that's the next writing thing that's coming out. Okay. So yes, that's the next writer. So do buy hair to read uh, that. And I also interviewed the screenwriter, which was very interesting. Uh, the film's directed by Milos Forman. Um, and I interviewed the director, um, screenwriter, uh, Michael Weller, who talked about um, uh, taking a, the stage musical of hair, which basically has no plot, um, but lots of great songs and um, you know making it into a film with a plot, um, which was then directed by Milos Forman. Uh, so that's quite uh, lovely to be uh, interviewing him. And I've got, yeah, some talks coming up um, at various cinemas around around the country and so forth. So, yeah, so keep an eye on that. Lovely. Well, there's, there's, there's plenty of things for people to go and, and see and places yeah. to read your work. Um, yes, but if, if you are particularly interested in the 80s, then I obviously just give a little plug for the, the James Bond Tashin the Tashin James Bond archives book which was a fabulous project that I got to work on a few years ago and we were sort of delivered these boxes of um, so I did the two Timothy Dalton films and literally arrived in the box was every single uh, page of production schedule wow. for every single day of shooting from every single unit so like the first second the aerial unit the underwater unit and whatever units there were working in this massive box and so I have to sort of work my way through and try and work out the kind of what really happened as opposed to the stories that told and for that one I um, interviewed um, one of the stunt pilots um, Corky um, who was very nice so who uh, filled in some stories that was an amazing 80s related project Um, and then slightly different 80s films I've also written a book on Jane Campion who started her filmmaking career in the 1980s uh, and obviously coming through to uh, top of the lake recently so uh, yeah uh, lots of different projects. <laughs> I was saying, there's plenty there. You know, pe- people think this podcast is purely a Steve Guttenberg loving or something. You know, <laughs> would like to broaden the horizons a little bit. Oh. Yeah, but you know, Police Academy, three minute baby. <laughs> you know, you can't. Classics, and you know, it's nice to know that Guttenberg's still working today. Not that you'd know. Yes. <laughs> no. Please don't tell me it's Police Academy twenty eight. <laughs> no, no. But I, I mean, these, these, I, I won't even. <sighs> Bear in mind that, you know, I talked about the tall guy not being available to stream. His films are available to stream because you can't get them anywhere else. Okay. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, I, there was something, la, Lava Tarantula or something like that was, or, and, and its sequel. Which, oh, uh, okay. Yeah, he's, he's moved into that genre now. So. Yeah. So I think there's probably some things maybe that further up the to watch list than those. <laughs> well, I don't know. Uh, could be a spin-off. 
Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh. anyway, as um, as per usual, I'll play out the podcast with a song that was number one in the UK at the time of this film's release, which was the nineteenth of April, nineteen eighty nine. Now, I, I suppose I, I could play this song out with madness, but I'll, I'll probably do that earlier. Um, but this one was Eternal Flame by the Bangles. So. Oh, that's, that's big. We can cope with that one. Yeah, I think. that's a nice <laughs> one. I've had a lot worse. So, <laughs> anyway, thank you very much. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Uh, and I'll speak to you soon. This episode is brought to you with executive producers Gary West, Fergus Higginson, Keith Foster, Jimmy Fletcher, Mark Drakes, Matt Cunnington, Christian Dees, Andy Elliott and Chris Hopkins and associate producer Chris Oakley. Visit patreon.com forward slash Betamax Video Club for more information about bonus episodes, early access and more. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review the podcast on iTunes.